from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to this episode of the CR podcast. This podcast is part of a five-part series from our annual Ditchley conference. Of course, this year the conference could not happen in physical form. It happens virtually over five weeks, bringing people to dis together to discuss the most important economic and political topics uh, of, the, of the year. The first session in this series of Ditchley sessions uh, was on the recovery from this pandemic. And we asked, how can we get it right this time? We asked Catherine Mann from City, Olivier Blanchard from the Peterson Institute, Elena Rybakova from the IIF, and Martin Vevey from the European Commission to help us answer that question. Here's what Catherine Mann said, looking back at the recovery from the Great Financial Crisis, or GFC for short. What, what were the previous mistakes? What, what kinds of things can we point to as previous mistakes that we would like to be able to avoid? And the question are, is, are we going to be, are we avoiding it? So, of course, the first previous mistake that, that we have to address is that um, policymakers uh, after the global financial crisis uh, took their time in uh, coming up with a policy response. Um, QE uh, took quite a time to actually be implemented, a lot of discussion about it, and uh, there was a significant delay in the uh, response to the financial crisis uh, coming from uh, the, the uh, monetary authorities. Uh, there also was quite a delay uh, in terms of the fiscal response to the crisis. And that you could say, that was definitely a mistake But since this was unheard of, I mean, there hadn't really been a financial crisis of this magnitude that had uh, global uh, consequences. Uh, you can almost give them a little bit of a of a buy that um, or an excuse that, oh, wow, we had no idea that the cascade was going to be so bad through the financial system uh, that the need for fiscal response was going to be as dramatic um, as it ended up needing to be. With Europe in particular, I'd have to say that post you know, global financial crisis, Europe did the double dip because of policy mistakes, because of ECB tightening, because of the pivot towards fiscal austerity uh, way premature. Her take on today was much more favorable on both monetary and fiscal policy. So I think we have gotten it better this time, um, quicker, larger, uh, and more sustained. But you also made one key point on how to do even better this time. A key failure in the underpinnings of economic performance is business investment. And um, so you've got to figure out a way to pivot fiscal from life preservers, necessary, important, to, I call it, building the new boat, meaning something that's going to generate uh, incentives for private sector investment to support economic recovery and employment and consumption going forward. Olivier Blanchard was next up, focusing on the fiscal side of the recovery with a two-part guidance. I think that my basic theme on the fiscal side is that governments must spend and must spend quite a bit. And that the second part is that governments can spend and have basically the space to do it. He gave two reasons why governments must spend. We have a supply truck, 
which is very unusual but temporary. So governments should avoid long-term adverse effects on banks or firms or workers. But there was also a second one. It's not due to misbehavior. Uh, you know, the usual moral hazard argument that if you help these guys, uh, they'll do it again. Well, clearly that's not relevant in this case. Nobody put, predicted the pandemic and nobody prepared for it. And even if you help people, they're not going to act differently in the future as a result. So I think that that argument is gone. The implications for policy in terms of what should be done, I think there should be an absolute priority for protection uh, of workers, of firms and of the financial system. For the time being, he argued reallocation should take a backseat, but it was not the only reason to spend. The other is that apart from this, there is an issue of aggregate demand, which is that because of uncertainty, uh, it may be that people are not going to spend more, are not going to spend much. And as Catherine said, firms may just, you know, use the option value of waiting and business investment may be low. So in addition to the protection part, which is the new part, you probably have to be ready to help aggregate demand. One of the key questions, of course, is can governments spend that much? Of course, Olivier Blanchard is famous for arguing that they can. And here is what he, what he said at our event. Clearly, it will cost money. It has cost money. It will cost more money because of the second wave. So in that context, there's a really interesting issue, which is, well, somebody will have to increase its liabilities in order to finance all this. And should it be the public sector? Or should it be the private sector? Should it be banks? Should it be firms? Should maybe be workers? I think there are good arguments both on the welfare uh, front and on the economic, purely economic front to actually want the state to incur most of the liabilities. And there was not just a welfare argument or a fairness consideration that taxpayers should ultimately shoulder the, the burden. There was also an efficiency argument for having the state incur the debt. On the Efficiency side, the question is who is most able to carry debt at this point? And I believe that uh, for various reasons, the public sector is the most able to carry debt at this point. Um, if you, you know, force firms to carry the debt, some of them will go bankrupt and some of them are good firms. Uh, if you ask financial institutions, well, they can take some of the burden, but there's a limit as well at some point that they'll cut lending. So it seems to me that, again, from the point of view of what's best for the economy, uh, it is probably better to have the state uh, take it. But that will, of course, increase debt levels quite significantly. And he went on to discuss whether that was a problem. Um, what matters from the point of view of sustainability is the ability to service the debt. It's debt service. Debt service is the product of debt times the interest rate. And in percentage terms, the interest rate has decreased much more than that has increased. So that service is actually fairly low. There's every indication that interest rates will remain low for some time, probably not forever, but say the next five years. And that's based on both structural uh, arguments and, and what investors believe. So for the moment, I think we can carry much higher levels of debt. Eventually, we'll have to do something, but that's for tomorrow, not for now. But Europe is not an island and what happens around the world will affect the recovery here. But how exactly? And Elina Rybakova cautioned that emerging markets and China in particular were not able to support world demand as much as they had done before. It's less likely we're going to have a full-blown crisis this time around. But it also means that we're not going to have support from emerging markets uh, or from China or from India in terms of the global demand. 
And if you look at the share of the contribution in the 10 years post-global financial crisis from China towards global growth versus the US, China contributed more than the US. And uh, it's unlikely China will do that again this time around. China is having a very healthy rebound. You're having even hotel occupancies uh, in the 90s. There's some internal tourism going on. Of course, we could worry about the second, third, fourth wave. But uh, they're probably the only country, if you mechanically put the, the information on the chart, that has rebounded very sharply and is doing very well. But their policy response has been focused on de-risking, on sort of risk management, um, some support, but very cautious. And probably we're not going to see much more from them uh, right now. So uh, this is on the emerging markets. We're not going to have a, a likely immediate crisis there, but we're not going to have a boost from them uh, towards global recovery. But there was more, namely the geopolitical tensions between the US and China, which were threatening the global recovery and hence the European one. One could also say that this is just Trump administration and maybe with Biden will be very different. Well, that's not the case. You know, the, if you look at them, um, at the look at the foreign policy experts publications that might the experts that might go into the current Biden administration They also talk about how foreign policy experts should be listened to and should contribute to the economic policy decisions of the new administration Be it decisions on SDR for the IMF um, Exchange rate evaluations or supporting the WTO So I think that's all geopolitical and Europe finds itself sort of in between US China strategic rivalry, and it's going to extend now, not just from trade, I think trade might actually subside in terms of focus, it will extend to sanctions and technological investment controls or export controls to technological rivalry. So sanctions are an important tool now of um, foreign and also economic policy, uh, investment controls and um, import, uh, export controls uh, are also sort of going together with that sort of statecraft that uh, US is likely to continue to exercise And we need to pay attention to that in Europe, especially because we don't have a united front. She was skeptical whether Europe had the ability to respond to these geopolitical threats, also in the interests of safeguarding its own recovery. And there were further challenges coming, for example, a digital currency from China, where Europe needs to position itself. If we were to start transacting with China in their new digital renminbi, then how our corporates or individuals, how we'll be able to protect their data privacy if we're entering in the transactions there. Um, so this is already uh, a big issue and they're steaming ahead. What does that all mean for policymakers? Martin Veve, who took over the director general from Marco Buti in DG ECFIN, is best placed to answer that. And he started off by looking at the EU Commission's forecast, which were published on the day of our event. And uh, this, this forecast confirmed uh, a steep drop in GDP of around 7.5% in uh, 2020, followed by a rather subdued um, recovery or rebound uh, of a bit over 4% in 2021, which, which is actually a downward revision compared to the past forecast with, with some two percentage points. And uh, as a result, we, we expect that uh, it will take until uh, the end of, of 22, uh, until the, uh, the EU uh, uh, economy on average uh, recovers uh, to, to the 219 level. If, the, if this forecast exercise has made uh, one thing clear, it is uh, actually the extreme high level of uncertainty that, that we're uh, living under. So the first order of business for policymakers was to reduce the uncertainty 
for economic actors to stabilize in the short run, but also to limit the damage to the economic fabric that we would like to preserve. And, he argued, European policymakers had done well so far. The economic policy response of uh, the, the, the EU has been rather good, I would say, uh, and at all levels, uh, has been swift, bold, and I would also say surprisingly well-coordinated, certainly compared to, to what, we, uh, what we have seen in the past. What is more, the European Recovery Fund showed that unity. I would say it's revolutionary for, uh, for the European Union. It, it's the first time uh, that the Commission has actually or will be allowed uh, to borrow uh, in order to spend. Uh, and the size of the package, uh, so 750 billion, and the fact that it is targeted on, uh, on the member states most in need, uh, make it relevant, make it macro-relevant, in particular for those uh, member states that benefit, benefit, will, uh, will stand to benefit the most of it. And uh, I would say if used well, it offers the prospects for, for a much-needed structural change while, while also uh, supporting the recovery. The big caveat to a successful recovery fund often discussed is the implementation and the significant administrative resources that governments need to use. But the success of the program will ultimately be determined by, by how the money is spent. So the first challenge that, that we're actually facing, the, the first real challenge, I, I would say, is to ensure a good quality of these plans. And, and here I, I should say that the ambition of the IRS reaches beyond giving the simple expenditure impulse. And, and just to be clear, because I, I, I can anticipate maybe Olivier commenting on that, this is not to say that, that we, we, we deny uh, that it is important to continue to, uh, to provide fiscal support in the short run uh, to the economy. Uh, we put also in place the, the so-called shore instrument to help the short-term work schemes. Uh, member states are doing a lot. We have, we have activated the general cape clause. So all that to, to allow member states to provide that short-run uh, fiscal support, which, which is absolutely necessary. But again, the ambition of the IRF and, and, and also the time horizon, I would say, of the IRF goes, uh, goes beyond that. So over the medium term, the recovery fund should aid the green and digital transitions, which is well known, but he was keen to emphasize one other point. And very importantly, we're very concerned about these divergences that we see in the, we already saw in the Union, in the Euro area before the crisis struck. And, and, and this program should definitely help to, to reduce these divergences. He finished by saying that it was important that these investments through the recovery fund were accompanied by reforms, so to make them as successful as possible. And with me to discuss all this now is Megan Green from the US. Hi, Megan. Hi there. So for those maybe three or four listeners that who do not know who you are, um, Megan is a senior fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and was formerly the global chief economist at Manulife Asset Management. And many people will still know you from your coverage of the financial crisis, the euro crisis, the Greek drama. So we have a really seasoned expert on the crisis here with a global outlook, and that's exactly what we need. So thanks again for joining. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Megan, you, you were at our session and, and heard what Catherine Mann uh, said about uh, previous crises and that we did better this time. Uh, would you agree with that? So I would agree with that broadly. You know, someone said to me um, in the depths of our lockdown in the U.S. in April, uh, thank God we had the global financial crisis. Otherwise, we'd have no idea what to do now. And I never thought of us as being lucky for having the global financial crisis. But I do think it was a good point. I think we learned a lot of lessons and we did better this time around, though I think there's a lot of room for improvement as well. Um, so in the U.S. in particular, I think in the global financial crisis, we bailed out Wall Street without doing a great job of bailing out Main Street. And a lot of the programs designed in the fiscal stimulus this time around were targeted specifically towards workers and small businesses. Um, there were a lot of bailouts for big companies, for the airlines. I think we gave more money to Delta Airlines than our government allocated to helping um, cover childcare costs, for example. So there's certainly room for improvement, but I do think we did a better job. Um, and in Europe uh, in particular, I think there was a night and day difference. Um, at the beginning of this crisis, uh, when the virus first started surging in Italy, uh, Germany and France talked about export controls. And I thought, oh God, here we go again. Um, but that fortunately didn't come to pass and actually in the end, Europeans have shown much more solidarity than most of us Euro watchers ever expected in the recovery fund. I just think that there are some concerns in terms of getting the recovery fund off the ground, in terms of countries actually applying for both loans and grants, because if they only apply for grants, as some have said, the package will be you know, roughly halved in size. Uh, and we're making a lot of demands on this recovery fund. So, you know, great progress, um, but still room for improvement, probably. And central banks stepped in in a huge way immediately this time around, which we didn't have during the global financial crisis. Uh, it took some time for innovation during the global financial crisis. And this time around, actually, I think central banks have come up with um, a much more innovative, effective way of trying to prop up uh, the economy then simply QE, and that's dual interest rates, which the ECB has gone ahead and implemented. And since then, the Bank of Israel and the Bank of Japan recently have adopted as well, which is sort of a way of providing a stimulus to borrowers and to savers at the same time, which is a much bigger stimulus than just QE is. So I think central banks have done a lot better as well. Um, the amount of ground that the Fed covered in a short period of time can't be overstated. I remember last October, I asked um, someone from the Fed whether the Fed would ever consider buying up corporate bonds, and they looked at me like I had 40 heads, and sure enough, <laughs> by March, <laughs> they were already announcing this, right? So they moved you know, a huge amount as well. So I think we've done much better this time around. I also think that we're still in um, kind of crisis management mode um, and catastrophe mitigation mode. So I think the fiscal stimulus that we've seen um, coming out of major economies shouldn't be really considered stimulus so much as filling in the hole that we all fell down when we shut down our economies um, to address the virus. Um, and I'm not sure that everybody's still viewing it that way. And I say that especially sitting in the U.S. Um, because our, most of our fiscal stimulus expired last July or early August and hasn't been re-upped, um, particularly as Republicans have rediscovered um, austerity 
and fiscal hawkism. Um, so I am concerned about that for sure. But as the second wave has emerged in Europe, any talk of kind of austerity has fallen by the wayside, as Catherine mentioned in her comments. Um, and I think that's a good thing. I think, you know, real yields are negative for most uh, major economies. So governments are getting paid to borrow. It's a no brainer right now to do that to fill in the hole. So Olivier Blanchard made a strong case uh, for why fiscal support is needed, uh, why it's the right thing, and why governments can, in fact, afford it. And it seems to me that we are seeing, not just in terms of the support measures, but also in terms of the medium-term outlook, that we are seeing first signs of a shift in the consensus on this issue here in Europe, in the direction that he was suggesting, that too high debt may be an issue, someday, uh, but it's certainly not the main issue today. Do you, do you also feel that there's a there's a broader shift in consensus? So I, I think there's a broader shift in consensus in Europe. Unfortunately, I think the U.S. is maybe going in the opposite direction off the back of the U.S. election. So um, Republicans, as I mentioned, are starting to discover austerity again. Um, and As there's news of a potential vaccine coming, and as uh, most of the traditional indicators um, for economic growth continue to hold up in the U.S., uh, there's pushback on coming up with another big fiscal stimulus, and I think that's a huge mistake. Uh, and yeah. we'll, I think that will play out in the data over time. It just hasn't yet because so much of that data is lagged. But if you look at the high-frequency data, the recovery is petering out. Um, the virus is surging, and we're, we're staring into winter. So um, unfortunately, that lesson hasn't been learned everywhere. Um, but th that it's, um, that's a bit worrying, I have to say, because um, coming back to what, what Elena Rybakova said about sort of the environment for a European recovery, if we, if we take a look forward, one of the main takeaways I thought was, okay, emerging markets in China are not going to play the role of engine of world growth that to some extent they did play after the great financial crisis, right? And Europe is not known for being a strong driver of world demand to the contrary. So does that again leave the US in the position of engine of world growth? And you, you alluded to this after the US election and Republicans um, sort of reinventing an austerity narrative. Um, can the EU actually play that role? Yeah, so Elena was absolutely right. China bailed us all out, I think, after the global financial crisis by providing demand. Um, and it won't do so to the same degree this time around, although China is the only G20 country that's you know estimated to have growth this year. So China is doing much better than the rest of us uh, in terms of virus management and also in terms of growth. Um, so there will be some demand coming from China, but um, there will also be less demand coming from the rest of emerging markets this time around than there was after the global financial crisis. And that does kind of leave the U.S. in the position of having to generate some demand. Now, there will be some fiscal stimulus passed, I think, uh, by um, either a lame duck government or the new Congress um, after January 20th, uh, but it won't be a huge package. Um, that being said, depending on how the Senate falls, um, in the U.S., and, and we won't know until January 5th when Georgia has these two runoff races, um, whether the Democrats or the Republicans will control the Senate. If the Democrats control the Senate, then I think there's a much greater chance that we'll get big spending programs. That that would constitute a blue wave. And, you know, Biden had recommended $7 trillion dollars in spending over the next 10 years, which is huge. Um, we, we probably wouldn't get all of that given how much more uh, slim the margins are for the Democrats 
um, than expected. But we will get some of that stimulus. And even if the Democrats don't control the Senate, I do think that one uh, of of President-elect Biden's programs will get through, and that's a green infrastructure program. And that has the benefit of providing kind of an immediate stimulus, but also for having a longer-term perspective um, and and aiming to boost business investment in the medium term, upgrade the labor force. So I do think we can expect that, whatever happens with the Senate. The size might depend a bit on what happens with the Senate, but it will kind of help fill in the immediate hole and also plan a bit for the future and generate some demand over the short and medium term uh, for the rest of global growth. Okay, so basically Europe, Europe's recovery hinges a bit on the Senate race uh, runoff in, in, in Georgia. I never thought that that, that would be the case. Um, f the final question for you, Megan, if we, can we, can we look a bit further even in the future? Because the EU recovery fund, as Martin Veve said, was revolutionary, and I think that's right. But my fear is, just as, as yours, I think, is that we are burdening this recovery fund with too many demands at once, um, so setting us up for failure a bit. So if you used your time machine for a moment and tell us what Megan Green in the year 2030 will say in retrospect about this recovery fund, what, what, what do you think it will be? So I think I would say that the recovery fund was absolutely transformational politically um, and in terms of the narrative in Europe, but economically, um, it probably wasn't the game changer that everyone's hoping it, it would be. Um, and I say that partly because a lot of countries don't want to take up loans. They don't want the conditionalities. So they'll only take up the grants, which reduces the size. Um, I'm also concerned about absorption of funds in Southern Europe, the countries that need it the most, which have always been a problem. So I, I'm not sure why it wouldn't be now, even without matching requirements for EU funds as part of the recovery fund. So, you know, politically incredibly important. And I think further down the line, it will have set the scene for um, bigger moves um, towards solidarity. But economically, probably not the turning point that Europe needs. And I think um, I'll probably have said that actually the institution that bailed out Europe in this crisis was the ECB, which moved very swiftly and also innovated incredibly. And I think I mentioned earlier dual interest rates. I think the ECBs applied them very timidly. But as this recovery continues and as this virus um, continues to hamper it, I think the ECB is going to have to step in and use dual interest rates more and more aggressively and that other countries are already following suit and will continue to. So I think the ECB will have held the bag once again, uh, but the recovery fund will have been an important political move. Thank you so much, Megan. That was really, really interesting and plenty of food for thought, I hope, for our listeners. Um, that was the CER podcast for this week. Um, don't forget to tune in over the next couple of weeks uh, when the next Digital Sessions will be turned into a podcast. We have a session on China, on uh, technological transformation, on the future of world trade and on the European neighborhood. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.